live from the JLE in London. Join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. And good evening, Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back again. Now it's Yom Kippur around the corner and everyone's minds and hearts are thinking about repentance and doing things better for next year. If you could talk about that for us, please. Give us some direction, how we should be feeling, what we could do. Thank you. Sure, fine. Let's talk about the concept of tshuva. We did address in a previous podcast the very interesting question of why we don't do tshuva on Rosh Hashanah, right? We explained that. Let's turn our attention now to the actual act of tshuva, which is translated in the non-Jewish world as repentance. But of course, repentance is really only part of the picture. Repentance is necessary, remorse and shame and so forth, but it's a much broader concept. Tshuva, in fact, means a return rather than a repentance. And it's a return to the original pristine character or personality that one began with before one began to make mistakes in the world. So here's a life that began pure, like all of our lives, and then mistakes perhaps were made, damage was done, spiritual damage, relationships harmed, and so forth and so on. That is accruing a burden of guilt and spiritual harm. How do we address that? Now, I'm sure for all of our podcast listeners, this is going to be purely academic. Yes, I'm sure none of them have ever done anything wrong, but of course they may one day meet somebody, you know, who's perhaps done something wrong. They'll be able to tell them how to go about correcting it. So let's move through the steps of the process of Chiva in practical terms, and I'll try to give a uh, beneath-the-surface explanation for the elements as we come to them. To begin with, let's lay out the parts, if you like. The parts of Chiva are three, sometimes five, and two divisions. Let me explain what I mean. The three parts of the mitzvah which are always required are vidui, the confession, the expression of remorse, regret, and shame for the past, and thirdly, undertaking for the future, I will never do this thing again. One can't possibly forget it is past, present, and future. Past, regret for the past, present, the act of confession, the future, undertaking for the future. These three steps we'll go through in a bit more detail, but those are the essentials of the mitzvah of tshuva. The Torah actually refers to it as the mitzvah of confession. The work of tshuva, of course, is primarily in the heart. But the practical expression of the mitzvah, the act one does in the world, is, is an expression verbally and verbalized, which is, which is called a confession. Now, these three components work only in private sins. As soon as there's a victim, what we call an interpersonal sin, or in the technical language we use, we say ben adam lechaveri, between a person and his, and his or her fellow, right? There, these three steps are utterly useless until two other steps have been done. Namely, one is undoing the damage. One has to fix what one damaged. No use speaking to God and appealing for forgiveness and doing chiva when somebody's hurt and that damage has not been fixed. And secondly, not only the damage has to be fixed, but also the personal feelings one needs to appease the person who was hurt. Not good enough simply to pay back or fix the broken object, but it also requires an appeasing. Conventionally, in English, we call this an apology, but really the operative part is not the apology, but the evoking of the dropping of the grudge and the hurt from the person involved. A moment's thought will show you that this is where the trouble begins. Confession, regret, 
and idealism about the future, easy. But other people, where other people are involved, things get messy, right? Um, how do you fix, how do you pay back when you can't find the person who was hurt? What happens if they're no longer alive? How do you appease someone who's no longer alive? What if many people were involved? Right? One, one person told me, he said, I've been running a business for 25 years, very successfully, and for 25 years I've been overcharging and undersupplying. Now I'm getting older, I'd like to fix it. How do you begin to fix it? How does he find the clients and customers, Jews, non-Jews? I mean, how do you begin? So these are very difficult questions. And I must say that there's good news and bad news. The bad news is this can be very difficult. The good news is it is always possible. Let, let's strike that hopeful note. It can always be done. But I would suggest that the sins between one self and God are far easier to fix, usually, than sins between other people. Dealing with God, easy. Dealing with your wife's mother, not always so easy. Those are the two components. However, they need all to be done. Let me also point out, of course, that if one fixes the damage with a person and gains their forgiveness, one still needs to do confession, regret, and out for the future because any sin against a person is also a sin against God, right? One is broken a mitzvah of the Torah when one mistreats someone else and therefore there's been mistreatment or abuse or harm in a relationship. One needs not only to fix it with a person, one also needs to do it as well. So the five components are needed. Let me point out that these five components are only one division of tshuva, by which I mean this. If you look in the classic locus of the laws of tshuva, namely Maimonides, the Rambam, he lays them out in ten chapters. The first two or three chapters, he goes through all the laws of these components. Then he starts talking in the subsequent chapters about free will and the mysteries of free will. And then in the seventh chapter, he apparently begins again. When one is done things wrong, one needs to correct them by tshuva. Seemingly the same subject. But there he adds a few critical extra words. There he says, just before dying. And what he's talking about in the seventh chapter is not the chiva one needs to do for all the things that one has done, but rather for what one has become. Or as Rav Gurvitz from Gateshead likes to put it, the first section deals with things you've done, acts, and the second deals with midas, character traits. Let me try to explain what I mean. The first set of laws deals with fixing things that you've done wrong in the world. But there's something much deeper than that. There's the character that led you to do those things that are wrong. There's aspects of character, flaws in character, that led one to missteps in the world. One needs to eradicate that as well. Not only chiva for the things you did wrong. There's a more essential chiva, which is this division of chiva, which is descending into the roots in character that are problematic. If one would like to make this dramatically clear, even though it may be very unrealistic, Imagine a person who's never done anything wrong. Never. Absolute immaculate behavior. But they're a person who has flaming jealousy. Only they've never shown it. This person gets unreasonably angry all the time, but they never display it. This person has terrible self-esteem. This is a very distorted individual, but no one ever knew. When this person dies, there's no accountability for actions done wrong. They never did any actions wrong. On the contrary, tremendous reward. But they will have to live eternally with a very problematic person, namely themselves. And therefore, this is a distinction between what you've done and what you've become. So that is, I would suggest, a deeper aspect of Chiba. And of course, it needs to be done approaching Yom Kippur. It's the classical time for it, but any time one's done something wrong, one needs to fix it. And any time one can detect a flaw in character, whether it's expressed or not, this needs to be fixed. Let's turn our attention to the basic elements of tshuva, namely the three components. Let's try to discuss them and get them clear. The Rambam, very interestingly, in the very first paragraph of the laws of tshuva, puts them into one sentence. 
I will quote for you the sentence. I would suggest that our listeners make note of this. I suggest writing it up in pink lipstick, you know, <laughs> on your mirror so that every morning you can be reminded of this. And here's the all-encompassing sentence that the Rambam gives. You say, Ana Hashem, which means please God. That's your introduction. Chatasi ovisi pashati lefanecha. I've sinned in front of you. That's your preamble. You use three words here for sin. One meaning careless sin. Second meaning not careless but deliberate sin, much worse. And the third one, not only did I do this sin knowing it was wrong, I did it because it was wrong. Rebellious sin. And unfortunately, every sin has at least a little of all three. Lefanecha, in front of you. Not that I offended the social norms, you know, I went against the conventions. I disobeyed a divine commandment. That's your preamble. Acknowledgement of the context. Then you say, Hare, Asiti, Kach Vakach. I did ABC. Here you fill in the dotted line, so to speak, your guilty uh, confession. Then you say, Hare, Nichamti, Uboishti, Bemasai. I regret and I'm ashamed of what I did. And finally, I'll never do this thing again. One very short, terse sentence, and it's gone. Clean as the driven snow, no guilt, no punishment, all gone. Right? That's the general general approach. There's some more complexities, but that's the general thing. There's some interesting things about the statement. One is, why does the Rambam use two words, namely regret and shame? We'll have to discuss that. But this is the basic formula. Let's go through the three components and try to understand them in depth. The first component is the video, the confession. And here the obvious question that must be asked is, can one do tshuva without vidu? What about a person lying in a hospital with a tube in his throat who cannot say the confession, but is very interested in doing tshuva? What about moments before death when a person would like to atone and do the confession and there's just no time? So this question is raised by Rav Tzadokah Koen, one of the great Hasidic thinkers of the last period. And in his book, he raises this question and he answers as follows. He says that tshuva without video is 100% valid. And not only that, you don't need to be Jewish to do that. In other words, one's train is heading on a track to a bad destination. One realizes that one has been behaving badly, and this is not the way to use one's free will. You wrench the train off that track onto a correct track, and you redefine. Of course you can do that. That's purely logical. You're now behaving well. You redefined who you are. Absolutely you can do that. Does not need vidui. However, Chuva done in that way, he points out, has two major deficiencies. Deficiency number one, you've not done the mitzvah. The mitzvah is the vidui. So you've corrected yourself, and that's all fine and well, and it's an obligation. But there's a specific mitzvah of the Torah to utter a confession. But I think more relevant to most of us is something very, very fascinating. And it's this. Tshuva without video. And by the way, he brings proofs from the Gemara itself that tshuva can be done without a confession. In fact, he brings proofs from non-Jews who did that as well. But here's the second difference, which is critical. If you are behaving badly, and you put your train onto a new track, and you redefine yourself totally, and you move towards a good destination, that's all fine and well, but the baggage remains attached. You have to pay for the past. After all, if you work for my company, and you cheat, and over the years money accrues into your account in an illicit fashion, and then you realize how bad that is, and you become my best employee, you still owe me the money. <laughs> the debt that's been built is remains, and therefore if one is sinned and done damage in the world, and then you do chiva, the debt remains. Punishment will be exacted. However, chiva with vidui affects the miraculous result, truly miraculous result, that not only is one redefined, the past disappears. One no longer has to account for the past. Not only that, 
if you do tshuva mi'ava, not simply regretting what you've done, but deeply feel how wrong it was. The clue here is the Rambam's two words. The first is nichamti, I regret. That simply means regret. Why do you regret it? It could be fear, fear of punishment. That doesn't mean an intrinsic realization. Shame is a whole different story. Shame is always caused by incommensurate states. When do you feel ashamed? If you couldn't succeed at something and you failed, you don't feel ashamed, you just feel like a failure. But if you could have succeeded and should have and you let yourself down, when you function below your own standards, right? When you know you could have been a better person than that and you don't, that's when you feel ashamed. That's called Shiva Mi'ava. Shiva Mi'ira means, Hashem, I wish I'd never done it. Yeah, but maybe you're afraid of punishment. I'm ashamed of myself. That's the Tanakhlanzi with punishment. That is a, a deep, remorseful awareness of falling below my own standards. When you do tshuva like that, not only is the baggage removed, now redounds to your credit. Super miraculously, the bad things you've done in the past now become counted as merits. And that, of course, needs explanation. So that is the benefit of doing the mitzvah of tshuva, which is literally miraculous, created before the world, as our Midrashic sources tell us. And of course, the, for those who have a psychological interest, the fascination here, and of course, without this possibility in the world, you'd be accruing guilt and spiritual damage until it became, you really drown. But mitzvah of tshuva enables you to clean the slate and start again at any time, which is a remarkable thing. So one can always return to a state of pristine purity and begin again. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, is you have to mean it when you do tshuva. This is not a mumbling of a formula. It has to be meant. So that's the concept of the video. Now let's ask ourselves, how does the video work? How does the mitzvah work? How does the past disappear? What does that mean? Point one. The damage of the past does not disappear. Tshuva does not undo the facts. If somebody kills somebody and then they do tshuva, the dead person doesn't come back to life. When Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, brought death to the world and were exiled from the garden, they spent 130 years expiating their sin in a very successful act of tshuva, never got back into the garden. They didn't abolish death from the world. Tshuva doesn't undo the fact the damage remains in the world. But the miraculous consequence of tshuva is that it no longer has your name on the baggage rolls on in the world, but it's not your problem. If I may, I'll mention a Kabbalistic explanation of this. Again, our listeners are always welcome to ask us questions and contact us, but not about this. <laughs> Please, if they ask me questions about this, I wouldn't be able to answer. Or delete. Yes. No, but I'll tell you what is written about this, miraculous though it may be. Megamon says, those who'd like to look it up, it's in Shabbos. Tractate Shabbat on Peiches, I think it is, or Peites, page 88 or 89. There the Gemur brings a verse that we quote on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur from the first chapter of Isaiah, Yeshaya. And the verse says, Im yu kashanim. If your sins are like scarlet thread, they'll become white as snow. There the Gemur points out a very interesting anomaly in the word. The word for scarlet thread in Hebrew is shani, not shanim. Here the verse, the prophet chooses to use a verse, a word that means not only scarlet thread, but it also means yours. But how do you make your sins like yours? What does that mean? Says the Gemara, if you make your sins like these years of creation, kashanim halalu, like these years, like these years of creation that are organized and roll on from the six days of creation, then you become white as snow. But how on earth do you make your sins like years of creation? And here's where the Kabbalists step in. That's all the Gemara says. No explanation. The Kabbalists explain as follows. And from here, please, no question. This is black belt stuff. The Kabbalists say this. In some sense, before you were created, 
back at the six days of creation, in some sense, your sins were inevitable. Again, one shouldn't take this too far. It's a very, very difficult subject. But in some sense, your sins were inevitable. Why? Because God knew you were going to do them. This is the deepest of all spiritual questions, namely Yedi and Bukhira, foreknowledge and free will. But before you were created, right back when the world was established in the six days of creation, in some refined and subtle sense, your sins were necessary. Hashem knew they'd be, and therefore they had to be. Now the question is, but why are you accountable for them? The answer is, because you did them. You put your name on them. You did them. You wanted them. You bought them. You acquired them. You enjoyed them. You made them part of you. And that's why you're accountable. Not for the action that happened in the world, but for the fact that you did the action. You made it yours. You put your motivation into it. You wanted it. You made it. Because you made it yours, you're accountable. What does Chiva mean? Chiva means you take your name off. You reject those actions. You repudiate them. You disown them. I wish I'd never done it. God, put me back in the same situation. I'm not the same person. I wouldn't do it again. Now that you've disowned the sins, you've taken your name off. And they roll on as inevitable parts of the creation that are no longer your problem. But what they were set out to be when the creation began. (laughs) Did those actions still happen? The actions indeed, they happened. They were always going to happen and they happened. The only difference you make to the actions is do you put your name on or don't you? And since you did them willingly, you took responsibility for those sins and therefore you accept the obligation and the consequence of punishment. But once you disown them, that's the miraculous thing. You can erase your name from them. They roll on as parts of the creation that God himself takes care of. Why'd they become merits though? Oh, good, good, good. Excellent question. Let's deal with that. All very well to have them rolling on in the world detached from you. How do they become merits? And the answer is, if you do tshuva mi'ava, right? Let's understand this closely in detail. If you do tshuva mi'ira, that means I'm sorry I did it. Why? I'm too afraid of punishment. Have you changed deeply? Well, you've gained a certain degree of self-control, but you haven't changed deeply. Tshuva mi'ava means you wouldn't do it again even if you could. Example, here's a child, a mother says to the child, I'm going out, don't touch the chocolate chip cookies. Mother goes out, kid eats all the cookies. Mother comes back and does whatever Jewish mothers do, probably something very brutal involving electric cattle prods or who knows what they do, but I'm sure it's brutal these days. The child then, mother goes out again, this time the child doesn't eat the cookies. Why not? He's too afraid. Is he a better child? Well, he has self-control, but he's not intrinsically better. You know how I know that? He'd eat them if he could. But a child who doesn't eat the cookies the second time, not because he's afraid of punishment, but because he deeply appreciates his loyalty to his mother and his relationship with his mother. That's a different child. This child doesn't even want to, or rather, this child wouldn't even if he could. Now, Chivami Ava, therefore, is a change not simply in self-control, which is marvelous. This is much more than that. This is an, born out of shame. I let myself down, and this is not the way I want to be, and it's a radical shift in self-identity. And that makes the sins from the past into merits, and here's why. Now, our listeners cannot see my graphic representation, so I'll try to paint a picture in words. Imagine a scale, right? Imagine there's a blank wall, and you have on your wall a scale from 1 to 100. Imagine a person coasting along in life at a level of, let's say, 80. Superior, 80-point person. Then they hit temptation. And in that clinch of temptation, they crash, and they fall to a 20% person. And now their life moves along at the level of 20. Scarred, damaged by the sin, spiritual inferior. Sometime later they do chiva. What's chiva mean? You get back up to 80. After all, you eradicate the problem, get back to where you were. If you do chiva miava, you don't get up to 80. You get up to 90 or more. You get up to better than you were before. And here's why. Imagine the person sailing along initially at the level of 80. 
they're looking good, this person, but they have a problem. This person has a vulnerability. They have a flaw in their character. They have a hairline crack in their back axle. <laughs> when they hit the curb, it's going to break. They don't know yet, but put them into a clinch. The Rambam's graphic description is a man alone with a woman in a forbidden relationship, and the temptation is too much for him, and he crashes. That's the Rambam's example. So this person, before they've done that sin, they're looking good, but they have a problem. They've got a weakness in character. You're saying the very fact that the person will fall we could say in hindsight that that makes them a lesser person. Absolutely. We see in hindsight that now we know he had a problem. Okay, now he crashes. Moving along at 20. What's the Rambam's definition of tshuva? That if you'd be put back in the same situation... Would you do it again? Would you do it again? And he's very graphic. He says the same woman, the same place, the same passion, the same physical prowess. Of course, it's impossible to be in that situation, but he's illustrating from a man's perspective at least. Now, if you wouldn't do it again in the same circumstances because of the process of chiva you've been through, you're a better person than you were before because you no longer have the vulnerability. You now look back with relish a moment you crashed because it led to a reconstruction. The sin has been incorporated in a process of reconstruction that's eliminated the problem. And therefore, you've used the damage of the past to your credit. You've now used those elements of crash right, to reconstruct, to eliminate the problem. And therefore, they're down to your credit. That's the logic. You know, Rabbi Reisner, sometimes I look at a person's x-ray and I say, you broke your leg 10 years ago. And they say, hey, doc, how do you know? The doctor knows because a bone always breaks at its weakest point, but it never breaks there again. Because when a bone heals, it thickens up around the fracture site and that's one place never broke it. This person had a flaw in character and when they crashed, they realized they weren't the big deal they thought they were spiritually. And now that led them to reconstruction where by definition they're long and long and vulnerable. And therefore that wouldn't have happened without the sin. And so the sin has now been used in a reconstruction. That is the graphic, if you like, or technical explanation. The spiritual world is meticulously mathematical, not warm and fuzzy. It is precise. And this is the reason. So in summary, that's an explanation of the mechanism. I would like to offer you another explanation, which is very important for our listeners to know. The most basic of all explanations. The question to ask here is, how does saying some words eliminate punishment. You know, the deepest rule of the spiritual world is known as midah connected midah, measure for measure. The Talmud says that all other midahs may not always operate, but this one always does. Some, whether we see it or not, God always operates in the world measure for measure. And of course it has to be that way, spiritually. Certainly, as we said, that the spiritual world is very precise. If that's true, it means that you did a sin in the world, you have to suffer the consequences, exactly as weighty. Here's the process. A person has a certain degree of flaw in character. That leads to an action that's problematic. How weighty is the action as bad as the flaw in character that led to it? How much damage does do that in the world? As much as the action caused. And the damage can be extensive, can affect other people, it resonates on, there's damage by the action, damage produced by the thoughts of the sin, damaged by the mood you got into after the sin, the fact that it got easier to do it again. You know, by the time you finish, you've damaged the whole world. <laughs> and that damage in the world reverberates and circles and comes back and hurts you. In Yiddish, this is called karma. <laughs> okay, that's where they got it from. But it's 100% true. What goes around comes around. And how much will that spiritual damage that you caused in the world hurt you? As much as you caused. And why do you need that amount of pain? To correct you. Because it's that amount of pain that is the consequence of what you did that you need to feel to correct you, to move you to where you should have been. And therefore, it's all measure for measure. Now, if that's true, how does saying some words get you out of that? Here's this reverberating spiritual damage in the world. Who knows what damage has been caused? It will come back to hurt you. We call that pain 
punishment. Punishment is not vindictive. It's only corrective. No loving parent is going to punish a child vindictively. You punish the child with whatever it takes. If you're a martial arts teacher, how do you hit your student? You hit them as hard as they need to learn that their defenses are weak. You break their ribs if necessary. It might save their life, right? You're not trying to hurt them for the sake of hurting them. You're trying to hurt them because it'll save their life. That's what punishment is in Judaism. When you get your ribs broken by God, he's doing it because your defense is weak in that place and he's teaching you how to save your life. Now, if that's true, how does saying some words get you out of that? God, this is what I did. Sorry about it. Won't do it again. 30 seconds and it's gone. Where's the spiritual balance? The answer is good news and bad news. The good news is it works. The bad news is you have to mean it. How much do you have to mean it? The sincerity has to be as deep as it takes to move you through the position that the pain would have moved you. So, why will God give you the punishment measure for measure for what you did? Because he needs to shift you to where you should be. How much pain will it take? As much as it takes to move you. How do you get out of the pain? Tshuva has to move you through the same distance. It's not mumbling a formula. When you say you won't do it again, you have to shift your spiritual essence to the position where you're so different a person that put back in the sense that you wouldn't do it again. And if you've achieved that change, you don't need the punishment. You know, Ramana, if a mother's about to apply some horrific punishment to her child, but before she administers the punishment, the child manages to convince his mom that he would never do it again. He wouldn't even want to do it again. He's changed completely. Of course she won't punish him. The point of the punishment was to change him. If he's affected the change, he doesn't need it. And therefore, on the one hand, Chuva is saying some words. But on the other hand, if you don't mean it sincerely enough to have redefined who you are completely, then you don't get out of the need for punishment. So I want to take you up on that mother marshal because the thing that troubles many people is that after the whole process of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and promising you're never doing it and, and really self-reflecting and um, almost in your head you're there you're, you've become that person that will never do that thing again but then Yom Kippur passes and then a month later the whole holiness the whole vibe is lost and you're back to your old ways is it like that mother that just keeps getting pushed off or does it make the whole thing meaningless or have you affected slight pieces of change right let's talk about that of course is the correct question so let's do it like this. There's the vidui we spoke about. There's the saying, I'm sorry about it, regret it. We spoke about that too. And most times we're serious about that and sincere. On young people, when we stand there screaming at the top of our voices of the categorical sins, and then it's silently we add our own private stuff, of course we're ashamed. Why are we in Shalom Yom Kippur saying that? The problem, as you correctly say, is how can you say you won't do it again? You've said it before and done it again. Probably many times. And most of us, unfortunately, have weaknesses that are repeated. You know, you know, it's like married couples, they argue about the same thing. 35 years, the same argument. You know, you think, darling, let's have a new fight, you know. Let's, let's liven up this marriage and fight about something new. It's the same old argument. She always wins. It's too terrible. I mean, you know. We are locked in battle with our lowest selves in just that way. How many times do you have to fail before you lose confidence in your own sincerity when you say you won't do it again? So let me answer your question. When one says... I won't do it again. You do not mean a prophetic prediction. Who knows what you will do when you're feeling low and things are going wrong in six months' time. What you mean is very clearly, as the Rambam says, Hashem, if I were now put back in the same situation exactly, with the same temptation and the same passion, etc., I would not do it again. If you can say that confidently, that means you become a different person and you've said it correctly. Not a prophetic prediction. That means I can confidently say I've changed to the point that my resolution and my control and my intensity of motivation here is strong enough that I can say categorically, put back in the same situation, I wouldn't do it again. But at that point in time specifically? That's all you can say. 
And then you put your money where your mouth is for the future. You don't go near the same temptation again. You put barriers in place. You've got to take it seriously. And that's all that's required. If in six months' time you were going to do it again, you've got to do tshuva again. It doesn't invalidate the previous tshuva. However, what one may not do is say, I won't do it again when you're planning the next time. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, says the Rambam, is another sin. And therefore, this is not a formula. This is not a quick fix. Tshuva has to be a sincere shifting in position. And therefore, what one says is, this is what I did. I'm sorry about it and ashamed. I won't do it again means I can confidently say realistically that put back in the same situation, I wouldn't do it again. And I made a plan that I won't go near it again. That's all that's required. What happens in the future happens in the future. That is the issue. Let me point out to you something very important here perhaps by way of bringing this particular session to a close, although we've only begun discussing some of the aspects of Tshuva. Let me point out to you that's very interesting in the Yom Kippur Machsel, not Rosh Hashanah, there we don't say the confession, but in Yom Kippur when we go through the confession many, many, many times, we never say we won't do it again. That's very interesting. Why did the sages who composed our prayers totally comprehensively, totally reliably, all the, the words there are all that you need, and they omitted the third component, which is absolutely essential. We say, God, this is what we've done. And we confess alphabetically and we all, we're ashamed and remorseful. Of course we say that. But nowhere in the Maso does it mention we will not do it again. And Shiva is invalid unless you do that. Here's the answer. We always pray in the plural. We never single ourselves out. And Rosh Hashanah, you the last thing you want to do. Single yourself out. The Jewish people are guaranteed survival. You as an individual, perhaps not. It's very dangerous to focus on yourself. We don't do that, especially not in Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. We always pray in the plural. Now, when we pray in the plural, we can say we have sinned in many ways. Of course we can. We can say we're ashamed and we're remorseful. What else are we doing on Yom Kippur on this day? But I can't say that you won't do it again, that they couldn't put into the mosque. If we can't make a categorical communal statement that we won't do it again, that's ridiculous. Therefore, you need to say that personally. So all our listeners before Yom Kippur, they need to take their marks on and write in pencil in that last paragraph, where you switch into the singular for the first time. In the middle of that paragraph, you look in the art scroll marks, so they have a little space there. There is a cue that our rabbis gave us. Notice that in that paragraph, on Yom Kippur, unlike the rest of the year, there's one extra sentence that they included. And the sentence is, that I don't sin in the future. And that's where you come in on cue, and that's where you fill in your declaration for the future. Otherwise, you've not done the mitzvah. The sages could not compose it. They couldn't put your words into your mouth, the words, I won't do it again. Absolutely not. And therefore, they composed for us the communal things that we can say, but you need to make that personal declaration about the future and make a real undertaking for the future that next year will be genuinely different than the past. This has been a brief introduction, I would say, to the basic element. We didn't discuss all of them in depth. We didn't discuss the interpersonal sins. We leave that for, for a future podcast. But this is a basic introduction to the most basic elements of the confession and their understanding. I will just add, if I may, just for one minute, not to forget the practical laws, namely the tshuva needs to be verbalized, not thought. Secondly, it needs to be in a language you understand. This is not a ritualistic formula, although Hebrew is better, Kabbalistically, but other languages work, and it needs to be a language you understand. It needs to be, says the Rambam, more rather than less. In other words, although in Judaism we like to speak less rather than more, but the words are more potent when they are few. Here, where the more one speaks, the better. 
and that needs explanation. A very brief explanation is, why does one make one's tshuva lengthy? The answer is, there are a number of answers here, but one of them is, there are many elements that one needs to atone for. Not just one, there's the act. One needs to feel sorry for that. The thoughts. Shari Tshuva says you're punished worse for the thoughts of action when you do a sin than you've punished for the action. The action, after all, soils and sullies a material entity, the body. But the thoughts sully and soil a mind, which is much holier. Then there's the fact that you got depressed after the sin. That's another problem. Then there's the fact that it got easier to sin again after the sin. That's another problem. Then there's that you've weakened other people's resolve seeing you do sins. That's another problem. And then, of course, most important of all, is not only the action and the peripherals of the sin, What's the underlying character flaw that led you to do that? Unless you've descended and delved into that, Shuvah is a lot of work. It peel away the layers of character. And that takes a lot of work. The vidu needs to be a deep self-assessment, a digging into the core of character. You know, for example, let's say anger. Sometimes anger is driven by pride. Someone stood on my toes and got angry because my toes, you know who I am. But of course, if I'm a nobody, yeah, no ego, then I wouldn't have got angry because it doesn't stand on anybody's toes. So tshuva is a deep work of self-analysis and therefore the more one says that one needs to explore the nooks and crannies of the character. And, and it can't really be done in one day. That's the lead out. <laughs> Indeed, that's a very good point. Finally, I would say, and I'll leave our listeners with this, there's one exception where one should not go into depth. What is that? Usually happens on Yom Kippur. You're sitting there doing tshuva on Yom Kippur. You might as well, mm, nothing else to do, right? <laughs> and so you mentioned some sin that you committed during the year. And before you know it, you're back at the scene of the crime, quite enjoying the memory. Not good. In such circumstances, one should move rapidly on, leaving the details to Hashem's imagination, while you still feel <laughs> a modicum of guilt. And can I just ask as a final question, is there any merit at all, if a person is not in a place of Kabbalah Bar, of taking a commitment, is there any merit at all as we read all the sins throughout Yom Kippur and you do feel regret, but you're in no way capable of even thinking, you know, having been faced with the same again, I wouldn't do it. Yes, in such circumstances, one should do this. First, utter the confession, absolutely. Especially the generic confession that's part of our prayers, absolutely. One can also add one's own. So you can make the confession. You can also say, I hate the fact that I did it. I wish I'd never done it. And I'm ashamed of myself and I regret it. But you cannot say you won't do it again if you're not holding by that. In place of that, you put in a prayer. Hashem, help me stay away from this. And I'll make, and I'll make every effort. But you cannot fulfill the mitzvah of tshuva if you know you still involved in that sin. Unfortunately, you just can't do that. Tshuva is not a game and a quick way of getting out of something that you you have to have killed the problem and have overcome it, right? And therefore, one has to be honest about oneself and I would say the first work of Tshuva is honesty about the reality. Thank you very, very much, Rabbi Tetz. Once again, a fascinating podcast. As usual, any questions, feedback, comments, please do send podcasts at jaylee.org.uk. Thank you. 